Hey listeners, welcome to the Intelligent Conversations, where we believe that everyone has a form of intelligence that resides within them. We invite guests from various backgrounds to share with you what makes them unique. Our hope is that you and I can learn and grow together. Without further ado, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Intelligent Conversations podcast. Today I have the honor to learn from Sahaj Sharda. Sahaj has one mission, to break the college cartel. He has witnessed many scandals in the higher education and asked the question, why does this happen? So Sahaj, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time to come on today. But I'm going to start out with this question. Where did this idea or this mission come from to break up the college cartel? What was kind of the birthplace, the starting point for you? Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I think there is a sequence of events that happened that really pushed me in this direction. Um, and in hindsight, it makes more sense. But at the time, it wasn't clear that, that this is what I was going to focus my energy on. And um, essentially, when I was in high school, there was, there was a pretty big admission scandal where a student who was a year older than me um, told everyone that she'd gone to both Harvard and Stanford um, and that uh, both schools had come up with a special program where she could go to two years, she could do two years at each and get a special degree at the end. Um, and then I think she made some statements like Mark Zuckerberg called her and said, just pick Harvard instead of Stanford and so on and so forth. And you can imagine like at a high school, um, things get pretty gossipy. Um, there's a lot of skepticism of some of these claims. But what was really weird about this was it was sort of a lie that spun out of control because uh, the South Korean press picked up this story. Um, and, you know, because it, it seems to me that I think her parents had South Korean heritage. And so all of a sudden there were South Korean international news crews outside of her high school asking many of us if we knew the quote genius girl, which is what she'd been dubbed uh, by the South Korean press. And so over time, as the press continued to look into the story, they came to sort of the same conclusion that many of her peers at, at my high school came to, which was that the story was a complete fabrication. And this was at your school, right? This was at my high school. And so... Um, at the time, everyone was sort of, you know, very dismissive of this person, sort of made fun of her, you know, um, and, and that type of thing. It was very embarrassing for her. But, you know, even at that time, I thought, you know, there's, there's something weird happening here where there's so much pressure on young kids that, that they feel even the urge to come up with, with lies like this in order to preserve status or, or something like that. You know, I almost turned it into an indictment of our society that is putting so much pressure on, on intelligent young kids to get into the elite colleges. And then when I went to Georgetown a couple of years later, um, the Varsity Blues scandal uh, broke out. And, and that's the scandal where really wealthy people were paying um, you know, this admissions consultant uh, named Rick Singer to uh, have their children um, basically uh, framed and and uh, through fraud um, promoted as these like amazing athletes so that they could get into elite colleges through the back door. And so at Georgetown, our tennis coach um, took millions in bribes from, from Rick Singer. Um, and I think it was something close to like 11 or 12 kids got in through this mechanism, one of whom was in my grade. And when the scandal broke out on Georgetown's campus, you know, the, the reaction was something that always troubled me, which was, that at Georgetown, people weren't so uh, shocked that someone would try to use money to get in. 
it seemed to everyone there essentially that this is a pretty standard way of doing business. Instead, people were more embarrassed for the person who got caught up in Varsity Blues because uh, her parents had been cheap. They hadn't paid a big enough donation to the school, and they tried to do this backdoor thing for 200K instead of a proper donation for 2 million or 20 million. And so there was this weird internal conversation that was very different from how the scandal was being portrayed in the media, which was more about the corruption uh, implicit in college admissions. And so I always found that deeply troubling that this is the way uh, that type of event was being interpreted on Georgetown's campus. And then a couple of years later, when I was looking into applying to law schools, um, I found out that there is a tuition strike happening at Columbia's campus, um, the school where I now go to law school. And what was interesting is seven really motivated students had organized a thousand students to say that they were not going to pay tuition unless Columbia increased its financial aid budget by 10%. And a thousand students signed up for this. I thought, wow, there's so much momentum that's gathering. The strike is definitely going to win and it's going to change the way higher education works because students everywhere are going to realize that they have this power. But unfortunately, what ended up happening is that the strike stalled out. And as I think about it now, and this is something I've written in my book, my interpretation of why it stalled out is that after a certain point, um, the strikers basically ran out of kids who cared about financial aid. In other words, the demographics of Columbia's undergraduate population is such that there's so many rich kids who just don't care what it costs. And so when you're trying to build a mass movement, once you run out of kids who actually do care, it sort of stalls out. And that's essentially what happened here on this campus. So all three of those things, you know, started to push me more and more each time towards, you know, this, this belief. There's something really troubling about the elite colleges. There's something troubling about admissions. There's something troubling about uh, the demographics of people who are accepted. And there's something really troubling about the business model. Because to me, all three of those uh, scandals were really caused by the same underlying cause, which is that there's such a scarcity of seats at the elite schools. It's gotten so hard to get into a Columbia, to get into a Harvard, to get into a Yale. And that's why you would lie or you would cheat mm -hmm. or only wealthy people would be able to get in because they can, you know, put their resources to work either through fraud or, you know, just with tutors and extracurriculars and all these other soft things that, that are necessary to get into the elite colleges these days. And so all of that to me was, you know, pointing towards this much bigger problem that no one seems to be talking about, which is why do the schools make their seats so scarce? If you're Harvard and you think that you're the best educational facility on the planet, why wouldn't you want to be teaching more students? Why wouldn't you be trying to build more Harvard campuses or buy other campuses and converting them into Harvard flagship schools all over the country? Um, you know, if you went to a McDonald's or Baskin Robbins and you said, you should sell less ice cream, not more. They'd say you're crazy. But for whatever reason, in, in the higher education system, when you go to the best producers of the good and say you should teach more, you should sell more and not less, they would say you're insane. Instead, what they would say is we need to get our acceptance rate as close to zero as possible, which is what has been happening at these campuses. I mean, some Ivy League schools don't even publish their acceptance rate anymore because it's so close to two, three percent. And it's absolutely insane. So that ended up really motivating me to take time to just study the elite college market. And that's what ended up becoming my book, The College Cartel, which is coming out in February, where I sort of um, talk about how the elite colleges collude to create that scarcity of seats, 
because their goal isn't to sell more of their product, it's to sell less of their product. It's sort of like OPEC, the more scarcity they, they produce, because there's so much inelastic demand, the price spikes like crazy, and that's how these colleges have gotten so, so, so wealthy. So it's almost like a form of price fixing there. Like they artificially it is. inflate the price. Am I kind of hitting it on the knob there? You're, you're, completely, you're completely hitting it um, on the head. I mean, the, the real key is the scarcity um, that they're producing is, is just classic monopoly behavior. Um, and so one way to think about the schools is as a joint monopoly. Uh, they have a joint monopoly. The top 25 schools have a joint monopoly on these, on these elite seats um, that people want access to. They want access to the best education in America. And it, especially for middle class students, um, the prices are trending higher and higher and higher. Um, and it's just it's hurting our ability um, for people to make the most of their potential. And it's because we have this monopoly on top that's hoarding resources in the most disruptive of ways. So here's like, I guess, kind of a counter argument to this. It's so the idea, I guess, behind some of these elite schools, I guess, is they want to make sure that they have the best kids in these schools. Mm -hmm. So my question mm -hmm. to that is, don't they kind of want to limit the scare, like have scarcity there so then they can have some of the best kids in there in the school? Yeah, so listen, you bring up a really good point, which is, okay, but, you know, college is different from uh, fast food where, you know, you just don't want to scale the product so much. You want the absolute best school students because that creates the best education. There's something to that argument. However, when you start to get towards 2% acceptance rate, you've sort of tipped over. There are plenty of very, very, very clever students who are routinely rejected by the elite colleges. Um, in other words, uh, you know, when they preference donors' kids, um, you could even make the argument that in a lot of those instances, they're actually accepting worse students, right? So I hear what you're saying, and it's true. There should be some selectivity, but we've tipped over way, way beyond the pale on that point. And so, um, you know, if you went back to like 1980, uh, a place like Penn or Princeton had acceptance rates that were like 47%, 20%, like high, high, high acceptance rates. Then we, we trended into the 90s where, you know, things are settled around 20% at the, at the most elite colleges. One in five students, plenty selective. Um, but now when we start trending towards, you know, two to 3%, there, there's something that's inherently wrong with that. They're not just taking the best, they're taking too few of the best. And in fact, in some cases, they're taking students who aren't the best at all by any objective metric. And, and so it's, it's clearly economically motivated and not quality motivated, as you might suggest. So I, I agree. I think oftentimes it's like a lot of these colleges, right, they're influenced. They want, they want to be a, be a business, right? It's like, okay, I want to make money, right? Donors come in, all these, like you said, the scandals you mentioned, or even just student comes in and says, hey, I'll pay a little extra or whatever it may be. They'll take that person like, oh, yeah, we'll participate in business. But then it, on the other end, it's when someone actually applies, it's like, oh, no, 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 we're a business. Like we... We're trying to have scarcity here and they kind of artificially inflate that. Is is that kind of the point you were trying to drive there? That Well, that's their business model. Their business model is to create so much scarcity that they can then essentially blackmail the billionaire for a $100 million donation, <laughs> right, to get their, their kid and cousins in. I mean, uh, that, that's basically what it is at this point. They put up buildings mm -hmm. with donors' names on it and they accept students to fill that and building. And to your point on the 40%, that's almost what made them a great school in the first place, right? It's right. Right. students that came there willingly, right? They wanted to go to school. They wanted to 
further their education. And then they actually did that, right? And they went and became producers in the world. Then they went back. Maybe they started donating, and maybe their kid didn't turn out as well. And they're like, oh, crap. I didn't focus as much on my kid as I'd like to. Right. And they start. That's where all of a sudden the college system starts to deteriorate a little bit. So a little bit on what are you trying to do to kind of combat this? Because I'll let you know, higher education, that's a beast to take on. It's, uh, it's really tough. And, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, well, how do we move from argument to action? So, you know, the, the first step of this was really figuring out what's wrong um, and trying to communicate that with the world, which is why I'm really happy to be here on this podcast with you. I'm happy to publish my book this month um, and really get the argument out there so more people are thinking about this. But then the next step I think is critically important, which is, okay, well, how do we go from all these great ideas in the abstract to actually make a difference um, in people's lives, which is where I think too many academics don't make that second step, which is why all these ideas end up just mm-hmm. sort of you know, circulating in these echo chambers and nothing really ever happens. I don't want to be like that. And so you know, I've, I've started identifying a couple of different areas where I think a lot of impact can be made. The first is, um, and this is one of the reasons I came to law school, there, there's a lot of impact that litigation can make especially when it comes to addressing monopolies and monopolistic behavior. And so you might not have seen this, but essentially there's a class action lawsuit that's already been filed and that is being prosecuted in the courts against 17 elite colleges, including Yale and Georgetown, Cornell and Columbia and Duke, um, that alleges these schools of fixing prices. And so what they're saying is all of these colleges for the last 20 years were part of this informal group called the 568 Presidents Group where they would come up with a common formula to assess need. And the reason that's important is because the way pricing happens at colleges is it's the sticker price that they advertise minus the amount of financial aid you get from the institution. The amount of financial aid you get from the institution is dependent on your need or at least how the schools assess need. And so because they were using a common formula, they actually weren't competing to define need in a particularly broad or expansive way. And, and because of that, they were artificially making college cost way more than it should. And so that lawsuit, I think, is incredibly strong, and it's going to lead to a lot of changes when it comes to financial aid. But that one lawsuit on its own isn't enough. And so I'm looking at identifying places where other similar lawsuits could potentially be filed to maybe push the envelope. And, and, and really help open up access to elite education. I'm also looking at things that can be done in the legislative sector. So, you know, I think one of the big issues when it comes to specific markets is uh, markets are complicated. It takes a lot to like learn and understand how things work and um, to come up with good ideas on, on how to regulate these things. And especially when it comes to higher ed, I think we've just been doing a terrible job as a country. You know, the credit is flowing out, essentially unlimited credit. Um, The schools are monopolistic, and so they absorb and and just basically steal all of that public money and store them in endowments. And then eventually, over time, the money in the endowments gets dissipated as fees to hedge fund managers and private equity firms and all these people who end up sitting on the boards of the universities. And so you can, if if you made like a sort of analogy, it's like the public is pouring a bunch of money into a leaky bucket and, and there's some rich guy with his uh, bottle of water at the bottom slowly collecting more and more money as middle class people uh, pay more and more, take on more and more debt. 
And essentially, it's, it's a very destructive system. And so I'm working on legislative proposals that maybe we could advance to help curb some of these monopolistic practices so that when we do put out credit, when we do make it possible to finance an education, it doesn't end up inflating the cost, but instead actually serves the student's needs and the needs of the country. So those are two areas where I would be looking at pretty seriously. But I think, you know, the third area that I'm not personally working on, but I hope others are, is thinking about business solutions. You know, how can we disrupt these industries? How can we like, you know, basically take market share away from them? Because if you think about the elite colleges, I mean, essentially no other industry will a school from like 1600 or whenever Harvard was founded endure as one of the most powerful companies through four centuries, five centuries. I mean, it's, it's just crazy that this is what's happening. But essentially, that is the story of Harvard. That is the story of Yale and Duke and, and all these schools. We haven't had a new entrant in the elite college market since like Caltech in like 1894 or 1900, <laughs> like early 1900s. I mean, it just doesn't happen. When was the last time you saw an elite college startup that really came and entered the market and competed? It just doesn't happen. And so figuring out ways to break those entries of barrier, the barriers to entry, um, to facilitate more innovation, I think is something that uh, I would encourage a lot of people to look at who are more entrepreneurial. I, I like your point that both of them, I think they're great. I think there's a time, right, where you should pursue litigation. There's also, I like how you proposed maybe a business path. And that, that's kind of where my mind was moving when, as you were talking at first. I was right. like, why doesn't someone just come up with their own idea, right, and try and combat, yeah. you know, these elite colleges? And the, the one thing I would say, uh, this is kind of another question that will come up, is if on one end, right, you're trying to highly regulate education, right, to make sure that, you know, these elite colleges aren't taking advantage of people like they are currently, but then wouldn't mm -hmm. that create a bigger barrier for entry for people that are trying to combat that because now they have to follow more rules and regulations that governments may put forward? So, so that's a really interesting point, which is, you know, something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, too, which is like, you know, when government gets involved with regulation, what often ends up happening is that the people who are supposed to be doing the regulating end up getting regulated by the incumbents. And this is definitely something you see when it comes to the federal government and their policies, which is that the elite colleges are incredibly powerful lobbyers. Uh, I think it's it's true that the higher education lobby is one of the highest spending lobbies in all of Washington. Um, it's definitely in like the top five. Uh, they spend close to like $100 million a year. And so when you think about that, it is to your point that oftentimes government is used to erect barriers to entry so that entrepreneurs can't come up with new products and compete. However, I will also say this. There are natural barriers to entry. So, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about is, okay, despite all this regulation, why hasn't a college-adjacent product emerged? And, you know, somehow, so one example is the Teal Fellowship where uh, billionaire Peter Thiel will pay people to drop out, essentially. And the question is, okay, well, why does that work? Well, the reason it works is because uh, in Silicon Valley, um, people are looking for sort of contrarian thinkers. And so if you're the type of person who's willing to drop out, that signals something that's very interesting to Silicon Valley investors. In the rest of the world, employers aren't looking for contrarians. They're looking for conformists, people who will take orders well and execute on the task given to them. And so for, you know, Peter Thiel's fellowship can work for the 20 kids a year he funds. Maybe it could work for a thousand kids a year. 
um, if done at scale. But there's a certain point where not everyone can be an entrepreneur that Silicon Valley is ready to invest in. There are much, much uh, more jobs that need to be filled by more conformist thinking people. And so that's one barrier to entry when, when you come up with one of these like sort of contrarian products. But the second is, you know, I was reading this book recently, I think it's called The Dream Machine, and they talk about the early invention of the internet. And one of the, one of the things they talk about is how during World War II, when pilots uh, used to go out to fly missions, it was very hard for them to communicate with air control because the wings were really loud and the propellers were really loud and the engines were really loud. So when they tried to speak into the mic and, and transmit what they're trying to say back to, back to mission control, people couldn't hear them on the other side. And so what some Harvard researchers pr proposed, which was ingenious, was instead of you know just saying whatever you want when you're flying, if you limit the range of words that you could possibly be saying, then despite all the background noise, people back at Mission Control could still decipher it. And that's how we got what today is known as the NATO alphabet, which is pilots saying things like alpha, tango, bravo. Um, and, and these words that sound weird, um, it, it, you know, it might not make sense why they're saying it, but, but this is the reason. Because if you know what to listen to uh, and listen for, and there are only a few different options, then despite a lot, of, uh, a lot of background noise, the signal can still get through to mission control. And there's something true uh, that you can analogize this anecdote to in the labor markets, which is if you know what to listen for, um, you can figure out uh, if you're an employer, which of two candidates is more likely to be successful. Because in labor markets, there's a lot of noise. You know, you know more about whether or not you're going to be a good employee than me as an employer who's interviewing for the first time ever could. Um, and you have reasons to lie, to exaggerate on your resume, you know, to, to put things in a very favorable light because you want the job. And so because of all that background noise, how am I as an employer to know uh, what is true and isn't? And so it's sort of like the NATO alphabet, which standardizes to alpha, tango, foxtrot, bravo. The labor market is sort of standardized to Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, Stanford. And there's this interesting thing that's happened, essentially, where if now you come up with a product that isn't synced, isn't synchronized, employers have no idea what to make of it. It's just more noise. Um, it doesn't help them compare you with anyone else um, because everyone else is already on that standard. And there's strong network effects to standards, as we know, which is why we still think about things in inches or in meters. You know, Essentially, when, once a standard takes over, it's very difficult to overthrow it. And that's essentially what's happened in the labor market with educational um, certificates. And so I think there is room for, for entrepreneurship. I think there is room for vocational training and new products in those spaces. Um, but for certain jobs like consulting, like the law, like banking, um, like some tech jobs, you know, it's going to be very difficult to overthrow this, this standard that already exists, which is why I think it's so important that we work to break up the monopolies through other means, uh, not just, you know, hoping for entry in entrepreneurship, because it's been 100 years, like I said, since the last entrant. Um, if entrepreneurship was going to solve this problem, it would have probably. So what, what do you think the breakup of this monopolies would look like then? Yeah, so one of the things I talk about in my book is how these, the college cartel, essentially the top 25 schools, collude. And one of the ways is through using a mechanism like U.S. News and World Report. And so what the elite colleges have done is they often protect U.S. News and World Report by giving it the credibility it needs 
to be seen as by, by students and, and consumers and college admissions experts as the definitive ranking, the definitive way to measure which schools are doing well and which schools are doing poorly. And because of that, you know, essentially every single school has an incentive, therefore, to do whatever the rankings incentivize. And what the rankings incentivize is be as rejective as possible and spend as much money as possible. So when you combine those two things, you're talking about the most expensive product for as few people as possible. And, and both those things have created this sort of cost spiral, which each and every single school is incentivized to keep going. And because they have this central hub that sort of regulates the market, is keeping it moving. And what I would suggest is that the government should think very, very seriously. This is probably the most cost-effective thing you could do. Instead of trying to get the DOJ to, to, to break this up like they, they're trying with Google or have done in the past with AT&T or IBM, uh, I think what would be super cost-effective, probably will not happen, but would be very cost-effective, is if the government just bought out U.S. News and World Report. It would cost you like $100 million, and in exchange, you could fix the way the rankings incentivize this sort of monopolistic behavior, which is more price and less students, and just completely reverse it. More students same or less price for the same quality. And if you were able to just tap into the existing regulatory framework like that, it would be a very cost-effective way to just flip the switch and completely change the way schools are meant to compete. That's an interesting thing. I, I mean, I like your the idea you posed there where the government can just come in and buy U.S. News. And here's a proposal I would think maybe on the contrary as well is what, what if people... What if we got other companies like, let's say, Google or another organization to look at these colleges and maybe rank them based off different metrics so then it's not just the U.S. news that's ranking these colleges? Is that a viable solution? Yeah, so the reason that's not viable, um, in my view, is because it, it was sort of what I was saying earlier when it comes to meters or kilograms or these yeah. standards which is that because everything's been standardized by the U.S. news already, it's very difficult, even if you had a more precise form of measurement or a better form of measurement, it's difficult to get people to switch over because there's just so much buy-in for the prevailing standard, which is why other people have entered the rankings market. You know, Forbes put out, puts out a ranking, Wall Street Journal puts out a ranking. No one, no one ever talks about those, and, and those are pretty well-resourced large companies. Um, and so I think, you know, that's less plausible. What I would suggest that that might be true is if if the government was to enter this market, um, I think it would be seen by consumers as actually better than U.S. News and World Report because the government has access to data the U.S. News and World Report doesn't. And so I think maybe that would cause consumers to switch uh, and flip and think that the government um, has a better ranking or more objective or better ranking system. However, I just don't think it's very plausible that the government is going to do that or or do it well. I think there's too much opportunity for corruption. Mm -hmm. So the last solution I would suggest is if there's a billionaire philanthropist listening <laughs> to this and they feel that the colleges have gotten out of control, very cost-effective philanthropy would be setting up a nonprofit to buy the U.S. News and World Report and putting together a board of public-minded people who then would consult on how the rankings criteria ought to change. Hmm. So how would this rankings data, what what do you think would be more effective to put into it so then it's more accurate and can actually benefit the consumer? Yeah, so I think the, the most important thing would be 
to actually measure the impact the education is having on earnings. And so, you know, one of the things that happens is oftentimes today, schools take credit for alumni all the time, right? So like uh, a good example is like, you know, Facebook uh, founder Mark Zuckerberg makes, you know, a couple billion dollars and Harvard jumps into the front of the line and says, you know, Mark Zuckerberg went to Harvard. Okay, great. I mean, he did drop out. So if anything, it should uh, signal the exact opposite, that you, you don't need a Harvard education to do well. Um, and, you know, it's, they make a similar argument about Bill Gates, which is that Bill Gates came to Harvard. Again, he dropped out. So maybe it's not saying what you think it's saying. But on, on a less like salient basis, you know, schools all the time post like alumni salaries and stuff like this. And, you know, my immediate response uh, almost every time I, I read something like that is, well, how much of this was because of the school and how much of this was because you just picked literally like some of the smartest people in the country because everyone is applying to your school? How much of it was the student and how much of it was the school? And I think we need to have a better way to measure those things. You know, uh, we need to do more but for economic analysis, which is, you know, if you got into Harvard and didn't go and went somewhere else, you know, what happened to your earnings? And there has been some economic research in this area which shows that actually the elite schools don't do so much for people um, who are already privileged. It, it does much more for people who uh, grew up with parents who didn't go to college or for people who, uh, you know, grew up in poor areas or for people who are, um, you know, systemically maybe discriminated against like black people or uh, women. Um, and so, you know, one anecdote I heard recently, and this is something I write about in my book, is it's an interesting thought experiment to think about whether President Obama could have become president if he hadn't gone to Harvard Law, but instead had gone to Howard Law. And, you know, if everything else was kept the exact same, but you just made that one switch to his CV, would he have been able to become president? And, you know, I think I would posit that the answer is it would have been much more difficult for him. And I think that's that has nothing to do with President Obama. It has everything to say about our society, which is that, you know, we sort of, you know, use educational signaling to signal other things or counter signal against things like race. And I think, you know, that says something very, very negative about our society on the one hand. But on the other hand, what that means is if you're trying to maximize the benefits of society from places like Harvard, then we should be doing everything possible to get the next Barack Obama in. On the other hand, instead, it seems like too many of the seats are bought out by rich people and too few of the seats go to people who want to make a difference in this country, who want to change the country for the better and who are trying to move up in the world. Um, and so I think, you know, we have to reorient the schools around people on the make um, and not people who are already made. There you go. I love that. I think I especially like how you mentioned the switch from instead focusing on people where maybe they're spending money, right? The donors, all that to making more seats available to students that, you know, actually can maybe do something and have showed that they've put in the work, whether it be in high school or whatever it may be, that they've put in that back end work and maybe will and I think honestly just looking at it, I mean the reason why some of these elite schools have even got the status that they have is because originally some of those people came in, right, worked their butt off and then actually went and did something remarkable. And then they come back and they realize, hey, we, 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 we built that, right? We, we helped that person right, get there. Right, and right. it's kind of like taking credit for what they did. I'm like, no, they still put in the effort, right? You make that choice yeah. on yeah. what you're, what you're going to get out of education. So to kind of uh, – I hate to wrap this up. This is a fantastic I, – I find this fascinating. 
But uh, to ask the intelligent question of the day, let's say you became the president of Harvard today, right? Or mm-hmm. in your case, you're going to Columbia. Let's say you become the president. You run Columbia. What you say goes. What changes would you make, one, to make it better, kind of make that about? And then also thinking of the word. But yeah, let's let's just focus on that. What would you do if you were yeah. president of Columbia? Yeah, look, I think um, there's a lot of change that can be made from those purchases of power. I when uh, I'll give you a short anecdote, which is sort of related to this. So when I was my graduation was delayed because of COVID, my ceremony. Um, and so when I went back to Georgetown, I think last May to graduate, I had already been working on this book. And I'd, I'd done an extensive amount of research. And the more I read, the more um, sort of, you know, terribly I felt about Georgetown's role in promoting uh, price fixing. They were, you know, President DeJoya was one of the key architects of the 568 Presidents Group and was one of the integral people in keeping that uh, cartel together. And so I decided to do a bit of a protest where I dressed up as the Monopoly Man when I went to pick up my diploma and I shook President DeJoya's hand and I said, President DeJoya, you know, there's still time. If you pull out of the 568 Presidents Group tomorrow and whistleblow on all of the other schools, the whole conspiracy will fold like a tent and you'll go down in history as a great man. And he's like, uh, he taps me on the shoulder and he's like, okay, okay. <laughs> and then he gives me my diploma. And, and I don't know how much of that got through, but, you know, it was, it, it was something where um, that was, you know, even if a little bit of it got through, it was, it was an opportunity that, uh, you know, probably very few people have to get in the face of someone like that and just at least make the argument on the other side. And so uh, what I would do if I was President Joyer or the president of Columbia is exactly what I just suggested that President Joy do at, at my graduation, which is for a lot of these, you know, conspiratorial combinations that the schools have, like the 568 Presidents Group, which facilitated price fixing on financial aid, or, you know, sort of like the, the bad data that Columbia has been submitting to U.S. News and World Report, you know, going back a decade, or just, you know, the peer reviews that they submit on each other to the U.S. News and World Report. For a lot of those types of things, um, I, would, I would go out in public and whistleblow about those things. I would then also, you know, look at my board of trustees and for anyone who was using the endowment as a piggy bank to invest in their own private equity fund or hedge fund or in their friend's private equity fund and hedge fund to harvest fees off of these endowments, um, you know, I would go to war with them. I would publicly name and shame them and try to get them off the board of trustees. I think there's a lot that can be done if there's someone with the courage to stand up to some of these corrupting influences at one of these schools. And, you know, a good example of this type of person would be someone like Michael Thaddeus, who is a Columbia tenured math professor, um, who put out a report um, online that blew up, basically detailing how Columbia was lying to the U.S. News and World Report going back a decade. And that exposure from someone within the institution was so important because it led to a complete change in policy where they're now cleaning up their data practices and they're not misleading students and other consumers. Um, and I think like those are the type of people that I'm really proud of and I look up to. And I, I hope that more of those type of people like Mr. Thaddeus uh, end up in positions of leadership at these universities. It's almost you, you need to earn your leadership. Right. You need to stand up for what right. you believe in, what you think is right and what's wrong. Right. And I think right. I, you brought up an excellent point, too, where corruption is just so relevant. And the best way to stand up to that is to make your voice heard and say something, because eventually it'll be too late. Right. You can't say anything. 
and or or they'll just shut you down yeah. that you won't you won't get the traction that you're looking for so final question then we'll get your information and all that but how would you like let's say someone's tuning into this they love what they heard today what would you say for them what could they do if they want to do something look i think there's you know so much to be done that uh, there's almost an infinite number of ways people can help. But uh, let me start with some of the easiest and then move towards people who wanna get more actively involved. Some of the easiest would be, you know, pay attention to politics. A lot of schools aren't necessarily privately held schools or aren't organized in a nonprofit way with a, with a private board of trustees. A place like UVA um, is very, very directly affected by how the voters vote in, in governor's elections. Um, a place like Michigan, a place like Berkeley or UCLA, a place like UT Austin, these are all state schools. And so, you know, I would encourage the voters in those states to really uh, ask for their candidates for governor to stake out a position for what their philosophy of what these schools should be is. Um, are they just going to be copycat Harvards or Yales or Columbia's um, that are basically essentially just inflating the cost of education and sort of harvesting those rents? Or are they going to stake out a different philosophy and really challenge those incumbents in a different way? Are the public schools going to challenge, you know, sort of U.S. News's dominance in, in, in basically colluding this cartel? Um, there's so much that could be done in that sense. And, and you know, I think people really um, underestimate how powerful their vote is. Uh, I think a lot of people feel, especially in presidential elections, that maybe, you know, one vote, it goes this way or that way. It won't do anything. But as you get more and more local, as you get to the level of your congressman or, or to your state representative or to your governor, you know, a couple of votes this way or that really do change things. Um, if you can organize people to bring up these types of issues and hold your governors to account, I think you could actually have a massive impact on the direction of your state university. So th that's probably the one area where I think people can, even with very little, just by paying attention and voting in a certain way, can, can, can have a huge impact. I think if you're, if you're trying to be a little bit more activist, I'd encourage students at these schools to hold their boards of trustees accountable. You know, why are you making these decisions? Why are you, um, you know, basically putting out fraudulent data to U.S. News and World Report in the case of Columbia or, or in other cases? And so I think there's a big role for student activism on the campuses themselves. Um, the third thing that I would suggest is that I think there's been way too little investigative journalism in this space. Way, way, way too little. You know, like I like I mentioned, there's been this price fixing cartel that's now finally being challenged in this lawsuit. That price fixing cartel didn't get a single mention in any of the major mainstream news for the better part of 20 years until that lawsuit was filed. And then all of a sudden, the Wall Street Journal covered it. Well, where were you for the last 20 years? Why were you asleep at the wheel? How are people supposed to know about these things if you don't do your job? And so I think it's so important that we invest in investigative journalism around this. I mean, if you're running a newspaper, this is, this is the fight. The schools are some of the most predatory institutions in America. Why are you not covering these stories? Um, and so I think all of those things, you know, even this citizen reporters with a Substack or a Twitter account and a Freedom of Information Act request can make a huge difference. So I would say those are some of the more activist ways to get involved. Just get the argument out there. I think, you know, people implicitly know that there's something wrong. They just don't know exactly what. And I think we need more ideas on, on that. And that's what I hope to do. And I hope uh, to encourage others to do. Awesome. Well, Sahaj, thank you for coming on today. I, I mean, you're out here spreading the message yourself. I think that's you're living, not only saying what, but you're also living. And I think that's ultimately the most important thing is, yeah, we can sit here and talk about it, but 
ultimately you need to put it to action. So if people are interested in what you had to say today or just want to reach out to you, get a hold of you, what's the best way they can contact you? You also mentioned a book, find your book. What's the best way they can do that? Yeah, great. So the book is coming out at the end of February. It's titled The College Cartel. You can find it on Amazon. Um, the best way to contact me would probably be Twitter. I don't have a lot of followers, so I'd encourage everyone to go and follow me. <laughs> um, my, my handle is at H-A-J-Sharda, S-H-A-R-D-A. Um, and I'm happy to give that to you. You can put it maybe in the description of, of uh, this podcast. Um, and then I also uh, have been writing a sub stack, although I've been a little bit less active on that as I'm finishing up this book on this final sprint, but I will be more active on that in the future, um, which is called The Muckrake. Um, and you can find that if you Google my name as well. So um, essentially, there are a lot of ways to get in contact with me. Just Google my name and you'll find all of these things, the book, the sub stack and my Twitter. Well, Sahaj, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts. This has been a fantastic conversation, and you asked some really good questions. So I'm really happy that I made some time to speak with you. Awesome. Thank you. So everyone, as you can tell, that is Sahaj Sharda. As you can tell, he's a very intelligent person, has great things to share. I challenge you guys, if anything struck your interest today or you find this fascinating, to reach out to Sahaj. I'm sure he would be happy to talk with you. Stay tuned till next week. We have a great guest lined up for you guys. See you guys next week, and let's get after it. Hey everyone, if you liked this episode and would like to hear more, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button. We release a new episode every Wednesday for you guys to listen to. Thank you guys so much for the support that you give. We could not have done this without you guys. If you would like to be a potential guest on the show, check out intelligentconvos.com and fill out the form there. Thank you guys again, and let's get after it.